Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, non-resident fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is March 17th, 2020, and I'm delighted to be here with Khaled Al-Gindi and Elizabeth Surko. Khaled Al-Gindi is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he also directs MEI's program on Palestine and Israel-Palestine affairs. He's the author of the book Blind Spot: America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Elizabeth Serkov is a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking. She's also a PhD student at Princeton's Department of Politics. Her work focuses on the Syrian civil war, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, and movements for social change in the Middle East. Thanks so much to both of you for, for being with us. Um, Elizabeth, I wanted to start with you and, and ask you to kind of lay out um, the, the different pressures, political pressures that is the Israeli government faces in responding to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and help explain why they have responded not with a full-throated denunciation of Russia, but with uh, seeming to try to find some middle path now including this, this mediation effort. Right, so Israel uh, on the one hand, um, you know, perceives itself as part of the uh, so-called West, uh, and obviously the U.S. Uh, is a security guarantor for uh, Israel and its major ally. Uh, so it wants to be in line with the Western position, which backs the Ukraine against the uh, Russian invasion. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Israeli officials mention again and again that Israel neighbors on Russia, and they mean uh, Russian presence uh, in Syria. Uh, Israel uh, has a solid relationship with Russia and uh, is loath to um, harm that relationship uh, to uh, kind of be more in line with the Western position. And this is why it adopted this uh, kind of a, a position that differs from the Western one of trying to mediate, but the Ukrainian officials accuse Israel of essentially adopting the Russian position. Uh, we know that many countries around the world uh, lit buildings in the colors of the Ukrainian flag in Israel, uh, the walls of uh, the old city of Jerusalem were lit with the colors of the both Russian flag and Ukrainian one, as if there is some kind of uh, uh, equal standing for the invader and the actor that is resisting um, a force invading their country. So Israel is trying to kind of uh, adopt a middle position, but is struggling uh, to do so at the moment. Elizabeth, can you talk a little bit about when, when Israel says that it's borders on Russia um, and, and it's concerned about Russian influence in, in Syria. Um, what exactly is it that Israel is doing vis-a-vis -vis Syria, maybe Lebanon too, that it's concerned about Russia's response to? Right, so um, when uh, Russia intervened uh, in the uh, Syrian civil war more directly in 2015, many Israeli officials were relieved they believe that Russia will serve as a check on Iranian influence uh, in Syria and therefore work very hard to maintain a good relationship with the uh, Russian military that is present uh, in Syria, as well as uh, the Kremlin. Uh, Russia essentially is allowing Israel to carry out uh, thousands. Israel has carried out thousands of airstrikes um, in uh, Syrian territory against Iranian link targets, Hezbollah link targets uh, in Syria. And this is done basically with uh, Russian uh, acquiescence. And at times it even appears um, Russian satisfaction to, a, to an extent because it diminishes Iranian influence in Syria 
benefiting uh, Russia in this regard. Um, so Israel is very keen to maintain this green light from uh, Russia and therefore is uh, loath to provide any kind of support to the Ukraine. Uh, for example, there were reports that the uh, U.S. wanted Israel to sell drones to Ukraine. Israel has sold drones to multiple countries around the world, uh, quite nefarious regimes as well, including the Azerbaijani regime, and yet it refused to do so in the case of Ukraine uh, to fend off this uh, Russian invasion. Khaled, I'm curious what you make about the about the way the Israeli government has responded to um, to, to Russia's invasion and the um, and, and also what the U.S. response has been to Israel's response. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say I'm not terribly surprised that uh, the Israelis are trying to stake out this middle gray area in between, uh, you, you know, they're they're not in a position, I think, where they can issue a full-throated uh, condemnation of Russia's invasion the way Western European countries have, just for the reasons that Elizabeth already pointed out. Um, I think it's not that surprising. Also, there is a very large Russian-speaking population in, in Israel, um, and there are long-standing um, you know, cultural and, and other family ties with, with people, both in Russia and in Ukraine. Um, so I can understand on the surface why uh, the Israelis would, would try to stake out that position, but it's, it's a bitter pill for Washington to swallow. And, and I think we've heard, uh, we, we've heard the administration um, express, uh, albeit in some somewhat subtle ways, their, their disappointment in, in the position that Israel has staked out. Um, but we've even heard from uh, Congress members uh, who uh, are typically quite uh, uncritical uh, of Israel, but we've heard some pretty strong words from people like Lindsey Graham, for example, that, uh, that this is kind of an unacceptable situation. I'm paraphrasing, those, those aren't his words, um, but, uh, but that he would get on the phone with his Israeli counterparts uh, or, or people in, in, in the Israeli government to express their dissatisfaction with the Israeli position. So um, I mean, think it clearly underscores the, um, I mean, there's a, there's a myth in, in Washington political and policy circles that American and Israeli interests are almost one in the same. And, and clearly that's not the case. It's, it's not the case with regard to the Palestinians and others in the region, um, but it's certainly not the case in broader geopolitical terms. Uh, and that's being highlighted, I think, in this moment. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me in, in a situation of, as we move from a kind of unipolar to a, to a period of greater great power competition, it seems to me that the possibilities for those divergences are even greater, given that the U.S. will push all of its allies to be take a hard line and anti-Russian and anti-Chinese stance as as it does, and that Israel may not always be on on board with that. Um, um, uh, Elizabeth, I'm I'm curious about your um, thoughts. Khaled mentioned the question of internal domestic politics in Israel. Um, um, given the fact that Israel has a large population from the former Soviet Union, um, but also just in, in general, how um, is this Israeli position of um, semi-neutrality, is it popular uh, or are there strong kind of criticisms? No, so generally, um, you know, both in terms of uh, media coverage and my relations uh, with people around Israel, 
the position generally is very empathetic to Ukraine. The coverage of, um, you know, the flight of refugees, the, the horrible bombings that have happened, uh, receives, you know, front page uh, coverage, uh, around the clock coverage. Uh, so there's a great deal of uh, empathy with uh, Ukrainians. There is um, also uh, often kind of this very odd discourse uh, of, you know, the, the Russian invasion proves uh, that we need to be strong. Kind of there's this perception that um, Ukraine's fate is kind of would have been Israel's fate if uh, Israel didn't have a strong military um, that um, we, um, you know, have to have a strong military to defend ourselves. Uh, look what happened to Ukraine. Uh, you know, they disarmed themselves of nuclear weapons. They didn't invest enough in militarizing their society. And, and, and this is uh, the result. But so overall, I would say that there's um, a, a great sense of solidarity. There were also several protests uh, in solidarity with, uh, with Ukraine. Um, and also there's been an outpouring of support to the thousands of Ukrainian refugees who have arrived uh, in Israel in, uh, in recent weeks uh, with people from all walks of life, uh, you know, looking for ways to donate uh, money, uh, SIM cards, uh, food, uh, clothes to uh, those arriving, often with very little because they literally fled from under the bombs with just a single suitcase. Since you mentioned it, Elizabeth, maybe you, you could say something about what Israel's um, policies are um, towards uh, Jewish and non-Jewish um, uh, people fleeing Ukraine. And because um, I know you've had some personal experience working with, um, with, uh, with Ukrainian refugees um, who don't have the right to return to, to, to enter Israel under Israel's uh, uh, law of return. Right. So um, I happen to be in, in Israel. I'm generally not based uh, based here, but I happen to be here um, over the past week uh, and uh, served as a translator uh, from Hebrew to Russian and vice versa uh, for a member of Knesset, Ibtissam uh, Rana, who visited the refugees, uh, both at the uh, Dan Panorama Hotel, where they are being held, um, and uh, as well as detention facilities in at the Ben Gurion uh, airport, and uh, the the treatment uh, of um, refugees fleeing Ukraine uh, is very different depending on um, whether the individuals are Jewish or not. Whereas um, uh, Jewish refugees are welcomed, are provided with financial support. There, even the COVID tests at the airport are covered. Their flights are covered. Um, they, they, they really are uh, welcomed and made to feel at home. Um, uh, Israeli officials have come to greet them, to welcome them, to make them feel at home. Um, those who are not Jewish, um, um, thus far, Israel has uh, welcomed several thousand of such uh, refugees. Uh, but they are not given refugee status. They are also not told that they can apply for, uh, uh, you know, request asylum and then go through the process, uh, which in Israel is deeply, deeply flawed, but they're not even presented uh, with this option. Oftentimes, the Israelis who invited uh, these uh, refugees to come and stay with them have to uh, essentially post bail, kind of a guarantee that uh, these individuals will return uh, to their country, and sometimes they are held in detention and even deported um, in cases uh, where they previously uh, stayed in Israel, um, 
for example, individuals who fled the war uh, on Donetsk and Luhansk in 2014, arrived in Israel, requested asylum, were eventually rejected and left the country. Uh, those individuals are held in detention. Those are the types of individuals whom I visited along with uh, MK uh, Marana. And um, several of these individuals have already been deported. They're deported back to the airports from which they arrived. So, uh, you know, Budapest, Warsaw, uh, Prague, etc. Um, Khal, I can imagine that um, um, Elizabeth was talking about an Israeli Jewish narrative among some Israeli Jews about the way that the the the, the war in Ukraine furthers a, a Zionist narrative. You know um, um, that Jews need a state. It you know needs to be able to protect itself. I imagine that for many Palestinians. Um, um, the 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 lessons of the Russian invasion of, of, of Ukraine and then Israel's response to it um, are seen in a very, very different light. Um, and um, they're uh, first of all, I wanted to just to it's I wanted to get your thoughts on the it seems to me there's a certain irony in the fact that it, it's almost taken for granted that Israel's justification for um, not opposing Russia's uh, violation of the sovereignty of Ukraine is, well, we need to be violating the sovereignty of Syria, right? Um, uh, it, you know, th there seems to me that that irony seems to be often, now Israel obviously has its own justifications for doing that, which may not be exactly the same as Russia's, but that's one one irony. And of course, then there's the whole question about this question of, of Israel's treatment of refugees, it being a country that was created through the, the, the creation of of many, many hundreds of thousands of, of Palestinian refugees. So I'm, I'm just interested in hearing you talk about the Palestinian discourse as, as, you've, as you've been watching it on, uh, on, this, uh, on these questions of the relationship between the Israeli-Palestinian uh, relationship conflict and, and Russia's invasion. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the invasion has been um, eye-opening on, on many levels for Palestinians. Uh, you know, it turns out uh, so many Palestinian uh, activists and, and commentators are, are, uh, are saying on social media and elsewhere that the West really does care about international law and the international rules-based order uh, after all, um, and that it can uh, engage in things like boycotts and divestment and sanctions, and that those things are acceptable tools of uh, of foreign policy making, um, and, and so it, it has. You know, obviously, Palestinians have pointed out the, the double standards, um, and one of those double standards also relates to the treatment of uh, uh, of refugees. And and I would imagine that Palestinians, I think there's a fair amount of empathy on the part of of Palestinians, both for Ukrainians as now an occupied occupation. They're under siege. They are being bombarded. Their cities and towns, their population centers, um, people are forced to flee their homes. That is a very familiar uh, experience for for so many Palestinians, and so I, I think at a at an ordinary public you know person level, uh, there's a, a a lot of a lot of empathy, um, but it's also I think an opportunity for for Palestinians to highlight those those double standards. Um, and, and it, you know, you didn't ask about the, the Palestinian leadership's position, um, but there's a gap there between, I think, where many Palestinians are. Um, I, you know, I haven't seen any public opinion posts. So I, I can't say uh, with certainty, but I, I think there's a clear gap 
uh, where the public is and where the leadership is, which is trying to strike a very similar balance to, to the one that Israel is. Um, and in fact, they're saying it more explicitly uh, in the Palestinian leadership that, you know, look, we're a weak party here. Um, and sure, occupation is bad. We, we reject occupation. Um, but we're not in a position to alienate anyone as, as one of the, uh, as a non-state actor uh, and as a weak party in this region. Um, and Mahmoud Abbas himself is a, has a long history with, uh, with Russia uh, in, in his own, uh, uh, in his own uh, personal and political life. He is, you know, what you might call a Russophile. Uh, and uh, he spent many years there. So, uh, but also in geopolitical terms, Palestinians uh, are not in a position to, uh, to alienate either the United States or Russia. Um, because of their, their weak position. I think Hamas is in a similar position, um, but I don't want to get ahead of myself in the, in the discussion. Well, let's just stick there. This is really interesting because I think this is not something which has been discussed that much in the U.S. press. Um, first of all, talk a little more about Mahmoud Abbas's Russophilia um, and, 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 and how much of it, can, I imagine it was mostly forged back when it was during the Soviet Union. So how did the, 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 the Soviet Union at least claimed to be a progressive world actor in a way that I don't think that uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia would. So I'm curious why, how that Russophilia continues. And also one could argue that the Palestinians or anyone is gonna alienate one group or another. I mean, one, one, you know, you're gonna alienate the West if you try not to criticize Russia. So what, is the, what does the Palestinian leadership have to fear from Russia? What is in their relationship? What is it that Russia could do to the, to the, to the PA, Palestinian you know, Authority that, that it might be concerned about? Well, I think they recognize that Russia is, a, is an actor, is a clear player in the region directly in Syria and, and, and elsewhere. Um, but they are also, I think, concerned with, for whatever reason, this leadership still talks about things like the international quartet, the US, Russia, the EU, and the UN, that old uh, mechanism for uh, diplomacy that really in practical terms has been defunct for, for many years, but they still make appeals to the quartet. It's, it's one of the few um, multilateral, or at least theoretically multilateral mechanisms that, that still exist in the Israeli-Palestinian context. Um, and so they need, uh, they need to have, on the one hand, a counterweight to the United States. Russia is an important counterweight. Uh, the European Union plays a similar role in, in other ways to counteract uh, America's special relationship with Israel. Um, so they're they're very much not interested in alienating any of these big powers, and, mm. and they say so explicitly. Mm. Um, as far as Mahmoud Abbas's own background, I mean, he did his PhD. Uh, he spent many years there. I, I think he's even a, a he speaks Russian. Mm. Um, yes, it was a different era uh, uh, in the in the time of of the Soviet Union, but uh, he has maintained those relationships and. Right now, he has very few friends in the international arena. Uh, and his relationships in the Arab world are strained. Uh, he has only a handful of, of close people you might call allies, like Jordan, 
Egypt less so, uh, but for the most part, he's very much alone. And he's not in a position to, uh, to alienate anyone, much less uh, a major power like, uh, like Russia. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it's a similar position that other Arab states, frankly, have, have tried to stake out. Um, but they've done it in a way that um, is, is more quiet. They're, mm. And they can afford to stay quiet because they have the cover. Mm. There are Arab states that are closer to the United States than they are. There is Israel, of course, which has a close relationship with the United States, who have this conflicted position. And that gives them a degree of cover that they don't have to be so uh, vocal about it. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. You know, I think one of Americans very rarely tend to think about the Soviet Union as having produced some streak of um, soft power, we could say, that, that could even endure decades later. But if you look at the South African government, the African National Congress, they've also been very unwilling to criticize the, uh, Russia since this invasion. They don't, even though South Africa doesn't have strong economic ties, but I think it also has to do with the fact that literally a lot of those people in that government also were, you know, were sponsored by the Soviet Union and have somehow transferred that, strange as it may might seem in some ways, to 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 this 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 current Russian government. Um, uh, um, Khaled, maybe you mentioned Hamas, so maybe we could just we should just talk for a minute about about how they are responding to this. Yeah, I mean, Hamas has staked out a similar position as the Palestinian uh, leadership in Ramallah, in which they're mostly silent. They're trying to not alienate anyone. They have less of a stake, of course, in terms of alienating the United States. Um, but uh, they, they don't want to be seen as falling uh, hard on one side uh, or, or the other. At the same time, so they, they are, I think, silent in, in, in the same way that the Palestinian Authority. But at the same time, there, there are some notable expressions of a certain amount of glee on the part of Hamas leaders uh, at the, what they're calling uh, the end of American domination. Um, and so they very much see this, I, I think, as, uh, as a sign uh, uh, that America's influence in the world is, is waning. And just the fact that America's allies in the region are so conflicted on this mm. really, really underscores that point. And so, um, but they haven't come out officially. And as far as I've seen, they haven't condemned the invasion, um, but they also haven't uh, uh, you know, uh, they haven't sided uh, with uh, with the Russians the way you know the Syrian regime has, and a few others. Hmm. Elizabeth, one of the su subjects that's gotten some media attention is the role of these oligarchs, um, Russian oligarchs, some of whom have ties to Israel, some of whom even have citizenship in Israel. Um, how much, if have they played any? significant role in Israeli policy. And I also wonder, wonder whether the Israeli government, Israeli societies, I mean, I know not all, all oligarchs are the same. Some of them have different relationships with Putin than others. But um, I'm wondering if, 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 if the view of them in Israeli Jewish society has shifted as a result of uh, since this invasion. Um, so uh, basically, uh, recently, uh, uh, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid came out with a statement saying that Israel will not serve as kind of a, a channel to bypass uh, sanctions placed on uh, Russia. 
Um, this was a concern uh, for the West, obviously, because of these links with the oligarchs, who, some of whom are, uh, you know, could be uh, termed as Putin's cronies. Um, there appears to be uh, today and in previous days kind of a mass uh, uh, escape of uh, oligarchs uh, from, uh, from Russia. Uh, they are, you know, they probably understand that economically it is not beneficial to remain there. Um, I wouldn't say that they have influence over uh, Israeli policy. I would say that um, the major influence is, uh, is the traditional influence of the IDF, basically the security establishment in Israel because of Israeli interests in Syria uh, is really kind of dominating the conversation inside the government and therefore uh, guiding the position uh, of, of the Israeli government. And... Um... One more question, just to stick with you. Did, I mean, it's one thing for Bennett to decide he's going to try to to play up, you know, to to not choose sides. It's another thing for him to jump into the breach as he has and put himself forward as this mediator, and now playing this this significant, potentially quite significant role. Why do you think he's he's done that? What do you think? And what what do you think are the uh, what do you think are the benefits to him, and what are the potential dangers? So I think that. He wanted to exploit this opportunity first because Israel really does have good relations with both Ukraine or and Russia, or at least it had those good relations before the war and before this uh, mediation effort uh, slash debacle. Um, and also, I think he wants to appear uh, domestically in, in Israel as a leader, as a um, you know kind of a foreign policy expert, similar to uh, Netanyahu. Who, Kind of uh, this was his brand, you know. Uh, he uh, in previous election cycles, uh, Netanyahu would uh, his propaganda would uh, involve him shaking hands with all sorts of leaders, including uh, Putin. Uh, so, so basically, the the idea is he wants to appear as a strong leader on the international stage. Um, it appears, however, that um, either because of his lack of experience or because of uh, um, you know, bias towards Russia stemming from uh, the, the the relationship that has been established by the Israeli security establishment and uh, Russian officials. Very frequent trips uh, throughout the time of uh, Netanyahu in office, exactly surrounding the the, the issue of Syria and the uh, you know activation of uh, uh, air defense systems in. Uh, in, in Syria, Russian ones. Um, so it's possible that due to these relationships forged, they he, he may not have even realized to what an extent he's offering something that is quite biased in favor uh, of Russia. Um, so, you know, this is something obviously that, uh, uh, you know, Khaled can probably speak to uh, very well and has written about how this kind of a very uh, intimate relationship developed over the years between the US and Israel led them to, you know, be quite a dysfunctional uh, mediator between Israel and the Palestinians. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to, we're almost done, but I want to ask each of you a little bit about the perceptions, both among Israeli Jews and among Palestinians, of, of the figure of Zelensky, who's emerged obviously as this very significant global figure. I, I'm curious for you, Elizabeth, um, 
he has this, you know, heroic uh, uh, reputation, certainly, you know, in the West. I, I wonder, on the other hand, in some ways, I might imagine that for some Israeli Jews, he might be a complicated figure, right? Um, he, uh, after all, is living in Ukraine. He has not moved to Israel. Um, uh, he's, a, he's a very assimilated um, uh, uh, Jew, Jew, and he does not really speak as a Jew. He speaks as a Ukrainian patriot, which, again, I think for many Jews in Israel and around the world is is not something that one expects. Um, and so I'm just curious about the discourse that uh, around Zelensky in particular in, in Israel. So uh, definitely the fact that Zelensky is Jewish is something that is almost always mentioned uh, mm -hmm. when, the, when he is discussed uh, in Israel. That is kind of a central characteristic of his. I think the most interesting um, aspect of um, discourse in Israel about him is um, the fact that you know, Israeli Jews, because of the Holocaust, have a quite a negative view of Ukrainians. Um, Anti-Semitism, uh, you know, was rife in Ukraine uh, to an extent still exists uh, till today. Uh, my own grandparents, you know, fled Ukraine during uh, the Holocaust. Uh, Ukrainians participated in the slaughter of Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, so the image of Ukrainians among Jews in general, Israelis, uh, Israeli Jews has, has been quite negative. And his uh, election to office kind of makes people uh, question like, oh, maybe something has changed about this nation. Uh, maybe they're not the anti-Semites that we remember from our, you know, our stories, our grandparents' stories. Um, so it, uh, his, um, you know, rise to such a high public office has um, shifted the views of Israelis with regards to Ukrainians in general. If they're capable of electing a Jew, clearly, you know, something has changed about them. And I think that definitely increases the um, empathy towards uh, Ukrainians uh, because, of course, anti-Semitism is, is rife and was rife uh, in, in Russia as well. But, um, you know, because the Soviet Union was fighting against uh, uh, the Germans, um, they did not participate in uh, massacres of Jews to to the same extent. Right, right. Khan, I'm interested in in your sense of Palestinian discourse. On the one hand, I could imagine that Palestinians may see a lot to identify in Zelensky in the sense that he's a you know a leader of a now occupied uh, nation struggling heroically against that occupation. On the other hand, my sense from what a little I've seen about it is he's not been particularly supportive of Palestinian rights um, uh, in his time as, as, as president of Ukraine. And I think he's going to speak to the Knesset soon. I imagine he's not going to give a speech um, which, will, um, uh, which would say anything about, um, about Palestinian rights uh, to the same things that he wants for his own people. Um, so I'm just curious about what, what you've seen about Palestinian discourse about him. Yeah, I think it's true. I think I think a lot of Palestinians are, are going to be conflicted about a personality like Zelensky because, yes, he is portrayed as this heroic figure, uh, especially in the Western media. And uh, and I think even even the Palestinians, those Palestinians who are inclined to be sympathetic with with Ukrainians are going to be a little bit conflicted because, as you said, um, Zelensky has not been supportive of Palestinian rights uh, and has been quite supportive in the past, at least last May during the, the war in Gaza, was publicly uh, supportive of, of, of Israeli uh, military, uh, Israel's military response in Gaza. And, uh, you know, those kinds of things, I think, 
will be used by, by a lot of Palestinians to, to justify, or at least they help to mitigate um, pro-Ukrainian sentiment uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, that said, I mean, I, I think there is, there is a kind of overriding sympathy for, uh, for, U- for ordinary Ukrainians but once it gets into the political realm, Palestinians become very conflicted, both because of the role that Russia plays uh, and, and a desire not to alienate Russia and because of Zelensky is not a 100% sympathetic character from the standpoint of, of Palestinians um, who, who feel that, you know, why should our, our uh, sympathy be uh, one way when they clearly don't sympathize with our plight under a similar condition? Um, but but yeah, I, I think it is a it's a pretty complicated picture. Hmm. Khad, I wanted to end with you one one last question, which is, um, it's obviously the world's attention is on the Ukraine right now, which means there's less attention to to Israel Palestine. There's less attention to what hap- what what what's ha- what happens to Palestinians. I noticed that the New York Times correspondent, for instance, Patrick Kingsley, has been filing uh, pieces with the datelines from like Moldova, right? So he's been yanked out of the region to go help with this. Right. Um, so I wonder if you see anything happening that suggests that uh, the Israeli government might be taking advantage of this relative lack of focus on them, uh, or if you fear that, that this could be, that, this, that, that things, things may happen during this period of potentially protracted conflict that, that may be even worse for Palestinians than, than what usually goes on. Yeah, there is always that fear. I mean, this was already a low priority and, mm-hmm. and on the international agenda b- before the invasion of Ukraine. Now it is uh, much more so. So uh, uh, it, it, I, I think there are a number of issues to watch. It, it would not at all be surprising if, if Israel sort of stepped up activities in places like Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. I think you know, the people who usually follow those issues are following them. Um, but this would be, I think, uh, an opportune moment to, uh, to move ahead with some of those uh, those kinds of measures, like the the uh, the evictions, the new settlement projects, um, I haven't seen um, I haven't seen a you know anything out of the ordinary from the usual kinds of provocations uh, that we've been seeing the past few years. But uh, the longer this uh, Ukraine crisis goes on, I think the more likely that becomes. Uh, you know that we could see uh, Israel pushing ahead on, on some of those things um, with the knowledge that, you know, Washington was already not inclined to be very critical uh, and in any case was dealing with those issues quietly. Hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, that will probably continue. I'm sure, you know, American di- uh, diplomats based in, in Jerusalem and, and elsewhere in the region will be, uh, will be, you know, talking to the Israeli counterparts on, on those issues. But yeah, this the the crisis in Ukraine does not help uh, Palestinians, uh, except those who are interested in using it as a kind of talking point to highlight the double standards. Right, right. Um, well, I, I think on on that note, um, we're we're going to close. Thank you, uh, Elizabeth and Khaled, for a really fascinating perspective on on these multiple different angles of the different relationships uh, in this in this really um, quite frightening and momentous moment. Um, so. Um, uh, 
Um, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMVP website, fmvp.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and you can watch these video, video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMVP's Occupied Thoughts. Thanks so much. Thanks, Peter. My pleasure.